Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 1, International Space Station. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we'll be bringing in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, pretty much all the folks that have the coolest information, the stuff you really want to know, right on the show and tell you more about all things NASA. We're talking everything from extraterrestrial dirt to the unknown parts of the universe. So today, on the first episode ever, we're talking International Space Station with Dan Hewitt. He's the public affairs officer for the space station program here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And we had a great discussion about what the International Space Station is, how it works, what it's made of, and why it's there. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mr. Dan Hewitt. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Uh, so anyway, let's uh, let's begin. I figured you're the perfect person to have here, being the public affairs officer of the International Space Station. You talk to scientists, astronauts, engineers, constantly. So you're you're very aware of what's going on and and everything about the space station. So. For those of you listening, I think this is a good opportunity to learn just everything about it, right? So start from the very beginning. What is it? Everything. Awesome. Well, <laughs> to start in the beginning. No. So the space station is, it's a giant spaceship. I mean, it is, it is the largest spacecraft that humans have ever built. And we haven't been flying in space for too long, relatively. I mean, we've been up there for 50 or 60 years. But the space station is kind of the pinnacle for what we've built so far. It is massive. I mean, this thing supports multiple people. It's been up there, at least pieces of it, since 1998. So that's another, another one of those factoid alerts that we always like to tell people. <laughs> if you were born after the year 1998, a spacecraft's always been up there, but if you were born after the year, after November of 2000, as long as you've been alive, human beings have been living and working in space. Wow. We are aliens. We are a space-faring species. We are the ones off the planet. We've had people up there every single day for as of right now, over 16 years. I mean, that is mind-blowing. And they're doing stuff every single day that's either going to impact us here on Earth or get us ready to go further out. I mean, that is the purpose of the space station. That's why it's up there. That's why we have this huge thing floating above us. So you say stuff. We're doing stuff every day. Obviously, living up there, I think, is like a is a big part of it, right? We're, we're mm -hmm. like you said, we're explorers, we're spacefarers. What is the stuff that's actually, you know, that has that impact? It's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of stuff. <laughs> and I mean, it is, it is, and it's divided up. It is as simple as just living in space. So just everything you do in space is a little bit different than the way you do it down here on Earth. I mean, it could be anything from going to the bathroom to how you eat to just how you get your water. Everything's different. So it's like a way to practice, really, for it is. for things further out. Because it's not really far up, right? It's only 250 miles. If you think about it, we're still in the Earth's protection. Like, oh, yeah. We're still protected by the Earth's magnetic field. Well, space is funny in that going up, it, it feels like it's so far away, space. But it's 250 miles. That's not that far. I mean, I feel like the city of Houston is 250 miles. It's not, but... I mean, 250 miles in a car is a is a short road trip, but yeah. 
250 miles straight up, that's a rocket ride. That's that's a slightly different road trip. But it is it isn't that far away. I mean, we still kind of are right on the doorstep. There's there's a, a really great quote in uh, the the Paramount of space movies Armageddon, where Owen Wilson says, <laughs> "You know, we're not even outer in outer space yet. This is just like the beginning." And that's kind of where the station is. It's it's in space. It's in what we call low Earth orbit. So it's still pretty close. I mean, they could get in a Soyuz spacecraft and be back on the ground inside of a couple of hours. So I mean, you're still right on the doorstep. You're not really way out there yet, but it's getting us ready to go way out there. Well, that's the whole. So NASA describes it as Earth reliant, right? So mm-hmm. I, I kind of like the way they section it off, right? Earth reliant means exactly what you said, right? So if something goes wrong, you can just hop in a spacecraft and be home in three hours. Mm-hmm. And um, it's easy to get stuff there because it's only, uh, I mean, some Soyuz rides have been as little as like six hours, right? Relatively easy. Relatively. Going, going to space <laughs> it's is only yeah, rocket science. Don't want to trivialize it. It's still, <laughs> and even that's the, you're going to have to admonish myself. It's still not easy to go to space. It's still, I mean, it is rocket science. It's literal rocket science, which right. is hugely complex and there's always inherent risk and all these other things. But when you start comparing it to, you know, going to Mars or you know, our far-flung aspirations of spreading throughout the, the solar system and the galaxy and everything, when you compare it to that, it's, you know, doing hand quotes, easy. But it's still a monumental undertaking. Yeah. And that's why, so we're doing that, just like you said, we are, the, in the future, we're, we want to go farther, right? So yes. we want to go to Mars. We want to really just expand our presence in the solar system. So the International Space Station is a great way to practice that. It's a good, like, you have a good understanding of what it takes to live in space, to operate in space. You could do a ton of science and learn how things interact. And then if you learn how things interact, you can design better systems to make them mm-hmm. work better. I think one of the ones, uh, I think capillary action, I think, was a, was a great one. Like, the way that fluids move in, mm-hmm. um, in space is kind of cool because they sort of, like, create a ball. And there's, there's no down. So if you're trying to design, like, a system that... Uh, uh, it, like a rocket system in order to propel fuel, you need to, the fuel isn't going to go down, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of needs to have that sort of capillary action and a, and a path to get there. Just like little, th- those little tiny things are things that make the huge difference in being able to kind of explore the solar system. Well, it all comes to down to gravity, and that's kind of the, the ultimate differentiator between why everything we do in outer space is different from the way we do it on Earth. Totally. Some of the stuff you touched on is, is, very apt. I mean, just moving fluids where, you know, here on Earth, we almost take it for granted that everything settles towards the bottom. So in plumbing systems and everything, you can use that to your advantage. In space, you don't have that. And that affects everything from moving rocket fuel to, you know, I'm an astronaut and I need to get a drink of water. Well, that system has to be specifically designed to work in the absence of gravity. Yeah. And we've had a lot of practice, you know, since we've been flying in space, since since the 60s. But the station is really the first place you've had on this scale. There have been space stations in the past, both from the US and Russia, but the space station is really the, the modern cutting edge test bed for just doing and learning everything about living in space. Mm-hmm. And so you have all of these different technologies that, like I said earlier, everything you do in space is different from the way that you do it on on planet Earth, where 
you know, you have oxygen thanks to natural cycles, and you have trees scrubbing carbon dioxide from your atmosphere and producing oxygen back for you. You have water in lakes, reservoirs coming, literally raining down on you from the sky, where in space, none of that exists. You have so to create you, uh, it. You either have to bring it with you or find a way to create it. Yeah. And that's something that we're doing on the station right now, where you're trying to, and that's one of those key, we always talk about the different technologies that you need, and technology is a really broad term, but one of the ones that is a lot probably easier to understand is how we get those things, how you get the water, how you get the air just for the crew members. And one of the things you got to remember is again so we're 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 close to earth right now so we can launch water we can launch air we can launch all these things to these crew members but when they go to mars there's no resupply ship there's no you know hey the water tanks get low let's let's you know stop off here and tap it off you can't do that <laughs> so you got to bring everything with you and everything is heavy so the more stuff you bring with you, the more fuel you need, the more expensive your mission, and it just kind of compounds on and on and on and on and on. And I'm going to ramble here for a while because <laughs> I love this subject. Okay, well, I'll, I'll kind of – I'm not going to stop you. I'm going to kind of, re, like, revert you. So okay. one, one of the things on the International Space Station they're doing now to do exactly that – so you said things are heavy, right? Water. Mm -hmm. Water especially is very heavy. Yes. I forget the cost per pound to order in order to launch Always water. varies. It always varies. Okay, that's good to know. But I know, the th like, one way they're actually doing, like, helping that out for long-duration missions is recycling. And the recycling system is just top-notch. So good that they actually brought the technology back down to Earth, and then actually is helping out third-world countries with, you know, not access to any kind of clean drinking water. It's like the filtration system is that good. They, they drink their own urine, and it, it captures sweat and stuff they like do. that, right? They do. And that's, that's always a... A fun ill moment for little <laughs> kids and stuff when you tell them that. But and there's there's the famous astronaut saying that yesterday's coffee is tomorrow's coffee, to where that's what you have to do when you have these weight limits and you're in this environment where you know outside your four metal walls is just a vacuum of nothingness. You have to find ways to conserve all those things, and we know very well here on planet Earth that conservation is a very important facet of life we Very try true. to do it through recycling and, and any number of things it's 10 times more important when you're in space and there is no you know corner store that you can run to and you know pick up some water so the only things you have are the things you yes. bring with you and so to recycle the water they actually and they do they collect water from all different sources whether it's the astronauts urine which is a major source their sweat condensation in the cabin any kind of wastewater gets fed through a treatment system which you know purifies the water and then puts it back out on the other side for them to continue to reuse and the the percentages seem to vary but i mean we're re reclaiming at least 85 percent of the astronauts urine back into potable water so drinkable water i mean that's incredible and as you alluded to we've actually taken that uh, water recycling technology and made it available and it's been used in uh, disadvantaged areas of the world that don't have access to clean drinking water and so that's just a, a great example of here's a technology that we need for outer space you know we're trying to solve a problem 
off this world where we have the problem and then we find a completely different use for this technology that it wasn't necessarily designed for. I mean, our scientists didn't set out to develop a, a water filtration system for places without clean, clean drinking water on Earth. Right. But it ended up having a use there. And that's, we call them spinoffs. And that's, you know, there's a lot of famous ones throughout NASA's history. That's just an example of one that came about with all the work being done on the space station. Oh, yeah. You've heard of, there's a lot of them, right? There's like um, memory foam is another one and like insulation for your house, stuff like that. Like that, all that there's, stuff, I think. There's is a lot. And we, we produce something called Spinoffs Magazine where, I mean, it goes through just about every spinoff, every technological spinoff that's come from space-based research that's used here on earth yeah. and that's that's just a symptom of doing research and development of this kind of funded research and development people can find novel uses for technologies that were designed for one thing in a completely different field totally okay so um let's take a step back and so we're talking about all, like all the experiments and like the reason that we're up there mm -hmm. Who, who's up there right now? So you say, like, you know, if, if you're 16 and a half, right, I think is the number. If you're, if you're 16 and a half or younger, you've never lived at a time where people haven't been in space. How many people are in space right now? Six. Six. And it, it's international, right? So we got, yes. we have uh, two Americans, right? Yeah. So international is the first word in the name of the station. It's sure. the International Space Station. So there's always an international crew up there. Right now, there's two Americans, Peggy Whitson and Shane Kimbrough, one French astronaut, uh, Thomas Pesquet, and three Russian cosmonauts. And so you you have crew members. We've had crew members from, and I'd have to look up the exact number, but, I mean, countries all over the globe have flown crew members on board the space station. Oh, yeah. I want to say and 18, that, I think, is the number. 18 I think 18 is the latest. And you've had well over 200 individuals travel to the space station and it is this global effort you have 15 countries that are considered the main partnership so these are the countries that signed all the papers and did everything back in the 90s to to form this partnership and you have five main agencies you have nasa here in the u.s the canadian space agency right to our north the european space agency which actually incorporates a lot of different space agencies from all over europe hmm. into one larger conglomeration uh, the Russian space agency Roscosmos and the Japanese space agency called JAXA, the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency. Right. And so lots of agencies, but all of this alphabet soup comes together to make the station possible. And so everything that gets done just about is done in this big collaboration. So you have these countries with drastic language barriers, cultural differences, sometimes governmental differences, all working together on this massive multi-billion dollar piece science research project. I think it's fair to say that space exploration is really a global interest, right? I mean, it exploring the cosmos, it's not just a U.S. unique thing. It is really an international effort to make that possible. It's something that will, as it does now and will certainly in the future, involve the human race, not just one country. I mean, especially as we continue to expand upon what we've done on the International Space Station. And we've even recognized that future missions, there's there's a lot of reasons to increase international collaboration, whether it's drawing on other countries' expertise, um, you know, 
one country is much better at doing one type of engineering than we are and vice versa, or they have some kind of novel science. There's also the pooling of resources, which is, can a lot of times be a major driver. <laughs> going to Mars and going to other places is going to be very expensive. Yeah. And so it makes a lot more sense to shoulder that burden across several countries who all have this kind of shared interest will probably have different main goals, which is true. It's even true on board the space station. Different agencies have different priorities for their research, but we all have that common goal of exploring space, improving the situation for people back here on Earth, and trying to push out further into the cosmos, into the galaxy, into, you know, be making Star Wars a reality, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, Star, Star Trek. Or Star Trek, yeah, yeah, Star, yeah Star Trek. Star Wars, probably, we don't need to fight. Yeah. Uh, see, one, I think one of my favorite things, really, when you think about, like, global participation is um, uh, the way that the modules were designed. So, like, each of them were just given, specif like, specifications. This is how it needs to be built. And they built them all over the world and then launched them up into space and connected them for the first time in space. Really, everyone had to be working together constantly to make sure that that actually happened. And then you have to launch it into space. Then you have to connect it in space, yep. make sure it works, make sure all the systems are integrated. That's crazy. It is. And, again, that comes back to you have these countries with, I mean, language barriers and just completely different ways of engineering and everything but we built the station piece by piece in outer space like you just said none of these things were connected on the ground the first time so mm -hmm. you better make sure that when you send it up to space it's gonna like you didn't build a, a square peg for a round hole kind of thing yeah so we had we there are definitely ways to share that knowledge to share the technology to make sure that all of your you know, you can agree on standards, essentially, to make sure everything talks to each other, all the different electronics or all the different structural systems, all of these different things. But it was still monumental to, to build this piece by piece. I mean, it was literally done piece by piece. You had elements launched on either Russian proton rockets or carried up in the space shuttle where it would arrive, a big robotic arm would reach in and grab it out of the shuttle payload bay, and then they'd attach it, and you might have to do spacewalks, and, mm -hmm. I mean, unfurling solar arrays and all these, you know, gigantic tasks. And it was done piece by piece by people talking and working together all over the planet. And there's really not another engineering project or even big project like that that exists. I think it's, it has been described as one of the greatest engineering feats in human history. Not to toot our own horn, but <laughs> we would certainly, I would certainly argue that building a football-sized million-pound spacecraft in space is definitely up there. Yeah, that is definitely, I, I, yeah, I would rank it number one, but yeah, who am I to say, We're right? Biased. A little bit biased. We're a little biased. So, okay, let's, let's kind of think about like what it looks like, right, and how it operates. So, we talked about how you, you don't have access to, you can't just walk outside or you can't mm -hmm. drill for more resources. Everything has to be there, so it's got to have power, it's got to have air, it's got to have water, it's got to have all these things. So, uh, let's, power. Where does it get its main power? The sun. The sun. Everything comes from the sun. No, it's, it's incredible, and a lot of spacecraft do this because you, you have the sun. I mean, the sun is, we have solar energy here on Earth, but 
in outer space, you can have even more direct access to the sun. It's I mean, a very readily, readily available energy source readily in available space. That we know how to harness. True. We know how to make solar arrays, and we have gigantic ones on board the station. So every all the power on station is generated through solar energy. And we had talked about they see 16 sunrises and sunsets a day. So about half the time, they're in complete darkness. So there is no sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what you have is you have these great big solar arrays that are generating power, and then there's a bunch of batteries on board. And the solar arrays are just charging up those batteries, so every time they slip behind the Earth again and they're in nighttime, those batteries are just supplying power to everything. And, but it's 100% solar, renewable, clean sun energy. Very It's true. all solar energy. And they're massive, right? Is it? I think it's they actually – they're so big and they produce so much power that – Actually, they do have to, like, kind of get rid of some of that power because it's it's kind of it's a little bit redundant, right? Just in case one of them breaks, like, you still have enough power to power the whole thing. You do have redundancy built in. Redundancy is one of our favorite words. Redundancy is a fancy word for backup plan. Yeah. (laughs) And at NASA, we always you have backup plans for your backup plans. So yeah, even if you lose, we call them power channels. If you lose one, you lose two. You can still power the majority of all of your systems on board. Mm -hmm. And even going beyond that, if you lose, you know, a much larger amount of power, you can still power your key systems and everything. You might just power down other things temporarily while you fix the problem. But it they generate pretty much a, a comparable amount to keep everything that we want on board and that's that's all the life support that's keeping the lights on mm-hmm. uh, that's running all of the experiments on board all of the different hardware just keeping the station you know oriented in the right attitude and flying it in any time i mean everything 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 right. is powered by the solar rays and it i mean it, it doesn't generate an overwhelming excess of energy by any means because again you are spending a lot of time in darkness so those batteries are getting used pretty much constantly oh, yeah. we're in the process of swapping the batteries we're upgrading yeah we've already upgraded uh, one-fourth of them we switched from, out nickel hydrogen for lithium ion right? that is correct that's right lithium ion they're way more efficient right yeah but that i mean that's that's the power story it's 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 all solar energy through those bigs and they are they are very large and mm-hmm. we come back to the football field, the American football field analogy. We haven't again. clarified that yet, have yeah. we? <laughs> uh, that the solar arrays are basically, each each solar array is the size of an end zone. And there are eight of those, yes, that are the size of an end zone. Or, Thing no, like a pair, are, of, a pair four, of four yeah, of a them. A pair right? of four. So yeah. four. it's tough because, like, one pair is actually two array blankets and but they're very large. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's power, right? So we already talked about water because you need to recycle water mm-hmm. and make sure you have enough. And water is very expensive to launch. And if you recycle it, it's a lot more efficient and it's very, very clean. So what about air, right? We, that's one thing. You, you know, you think about like what a human needs, shelter, wa- uh, water, food. You didn't really think about air because, but... That's something you definitely need in space. That's, uh, again, that's something we kind of take for granted. That <laughs> air is just—it's—it's it's air. It's everywhere down here. But right. up there, you're in a—you're in a sealed environment. You're basically in a big, sealed tin can, and you need to fill that with air. So they—we can launch air, just like we can launch water. You can launch a tank of super-pressurized air, usually in its liquid form, and then feed it into the atmosphere. But the main way we get it is from water 
we use a system called the oxygen generation system that actually takes water, splits the atom, uh, splits the atom, but uh, splits the a water molecule into oxygen and hydrogen. And then we can take that oxygen and pump it into the atmosphere. Boom. And they aren't in a pure oxygen atmosphere, so there's other stuff in there. There's a mm -hmm. lot of nitrogen. Sure. So Very that, similar to Earth's atmosphere, right? Yeah, same, they're basically in the exact same composition atmosphere that we have on Earth. And actually the same pressure, too. So there's, there's no big difference there. Uh, that feeds into some of the stuff they have to do for spacewalks, but that's a completely different tangent I can go on. <laughs> but... So we, we, we split the water molecules, so then you have your oxygen, which you can just feed directly back into the cabin, and then you have hydrogen, which you can vent overboard if you just build up a bunch of excess hydrogen. Or there's a process in a, in a payload up there. It's, it's used. It's more of a technology demonstration, so it's not really in the, in the critical path. So it's not a critical piece that we have to have running at all times, mm -hmm. but it's called the Sabatier. It uses the Sabatier process where you can take that hydrogen that you had left over from your water, and then you can take the carbon dioxide that gets scrubbed out of the atmosphere by a different device. You split that carbon dioxide, you now have oxygen, and then you have your leftover hydrogen. You combine those two, and you got more water. Boom. And so you can kind of build, the, the, the ideal is to build, we call it a closed loop. So everything that gets put into this life support loop it's a big circle just constantly gets recycled you got your water you drink your water you recycle your water you take some of that water you turn it into air and oxygen you take that excess hydrogen you combine it with co2 that the astronauts are breathing out you make more water and so it's all just kind of constantly going around in a circle and that way you get the absolute most out of everything you send up there that's crazy. You actually have to create an atmosphere, right? Yes. Up there. It's not like Earth where it kind of does it for us. You actually have to make it work. That's yes. crazy. I like the Sabatier system. That's cool. He says it's a technology demonstration. I thought it was like part of the whole thing because I know they, they called it a partially closed loop because like you said, you can eject the hydrogen if you have too much, mm -hmm. right? So it's, but it's same, kind of the same concept. Yep. So, okay, so they have air, they have water, they have power, they have all kinds of stuff. So let's talk about, um, like, I, the, some of the experiments. I know one of the biggest one is the experiment on themselves, mm -hmm. right? So you, in order to actually function beyond low Earth orbit and actually function in space, you have to learn how the human body reacts in space and what happens. So I think the biggest thing... Uh, maybe it's not the biggest thing, but it's definitely a very important is uh, bone loss and muscle degradation, right? Mm -hmm. So that is if you're in space for too long and you're just kind of floating around, your bones start to exhibit uh, symptoms of osteoporosis and your muscles start to uh, degrade. So how do they counter that? Yeah. Well, when we talk research, there's really, there's kind of two different camps. There's the research that we're doing on board the station to get us ready to you know, go on to Mars, explore the solar system, all of those other things, which is a lot of what you were just talking about. And then there's the research that has direct applications on Earth. And we can, we can dive into that too. But that's research flown by commercial companies, by you know, academia, taking advantage of this microgravity environment because we've, we've seen that there's a lot you can learn by taking gravity out of the equation. 
but mm-hmm. to the first camp, <laughs> to the to the you know studying the people, the astronauts are guinea pigs kind of thing. The human body is an incredible machine, and it's incredible at adapting to different environments. I mean, that's that's both a gift and a curse, because when you go into outer space, I mean. Your, your vestibular system, so your sense of, you know, up is down, down is up, your balance, all of that, goes all, all out of whack. But within about a day or two, most astronauts don't have the nausea anymore. Their body is, is used to it already, and they're able to live and work, which that's incredible. That's a great advantage to just getting into a new environment and hitting the ground running. The mm-hmm. problem with that is when you get to an environment where you have gravity again, hitting the ground running can be very problematic <laughs> because your body, when it's not, when gravity is not pulling down on you. So you and I right now, I mean, gravity is pushing down on you at all times and that builds up muscles in your hips and bones in your hips. And that's why your legs are strong enough to just hold you upright because they're constantly fighting against that force. On places like the space station, that force disappears. And so your body says, hmm, well, I don't need these muscles anymore. So it stops feeding nutrients to those. And so you can actually, um, astronauts will dispel. So in their urine, they'll get uh, raised levels of calcium because their bones aren't needing it as much because their bones aren't you know, getting that much force just by existing. Mm-hmm. They're getting rid of the calcium because you're yeah. right. It doesn't, the body's saying you don't need this anymore. And so... Understanding a lot of those processes is important because, I mean, if the astronauts were just going to stay in microgravity forever, not that big of a deal because their body just adapts and, I mean, they become space people. But astronauts come back to Earth. Astronauts will walk on Mars where there is gravity. Less gravity, but still gravity. And you're going to need to walk around in a pretty heavy spacesuit and things like that. So finding ways to counteract call them countermeasures for all all the ways the body adapts is it's something that we've been doing pretty much as long as we've been doing space flight but we've really aggressively pursued it on board the space station so for example bone loss and muscle loss we've actually pretty much reversed for the most part all of the bone loss and muscle loss you'll still see changes in bone density in some of the crew members but a lot of them aren't losing that bone mass, that muscle mass that was such a problem in early long duration space flight. Mm-hmm. And we do that through exercise. That is that is the main driver. That's there's the exercise and there's nutrition, but exercise, the crew members are working out about two hours every single day. I don't know about you, but I don't work out two hours every single day. 30 minutes, I'm pretty much done. Yeah. <laughs> Even that can be hard for some people to find. But the crew members, two hours every single day. And that's exercise, both cardio and resistance. So they have a number of devices up there. Uh, they have a treadmill, which, again, you need to remember everything. And this is the running theme. Everything <laughs> we do in microgravity is different. So you can't just hop on a treadmill. You'll just float away. And you'll just be pumping your legs in microgravity, and that does nothing for you. So the treadmill actually has a harness with basically bungee cables that pulls them down towards the treadmill. So that way you're getting the force in your legs, you're actually exerting more force, and you can you can run. It's the closest you can get to just running in space. And I mean, mm-hmm. we've had astronauts run marathons on the treadmill, and that's one of their key devices. They also have something 
called the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device. I've stayed away from acronyms as much as possible. You're doing a great job. So far, but they inevitably come up. We call it A-RED. Right. And it is, it's their, it's basically their home gym on board the station. Mm-hmm. Now, again, you can't just pick up a heavy weight and do some curls and, you know, get a workout. Wait, it doesn't work. It makes like no that. sense. It's microgravity. Yeah. yeah. There's microgravity. So, I mean, they can, they literally move several hundred pound modules and pieces of hardware all the time. And so to help simulate weightlifting, it actually uses a series of pneumatic tubes to simulate force. Hmm. And they can actually simulate up to 600 pounds of force. Nice. Which some of the astronauts, their squat, their squat number goes up when they're up there. <laughs> and it's slightly misleading because they're not squatting their own body weight like they are here on Earth. Right. It's still 600 pounds. I don't think I can. Well, I don't think any of them do 600 pounds, <laughs> but they have the option if, if we ever get some power lifters One day. up on board the station. And then they also have a stationary bicycle. And then there's another treadmill. So there's actually, well, there's two treadmills on board the station. Hmm. But, I mean, they, they use all of those two hours a day, just and that's just to maintain that bone and muscle. Mm-hmm. And... There's also ways you can help that process through nutrition. We're constantly looking, is there a better way for them to work out? Should they do? I mean, there's something, there are research projects like Sprint, where does it make sense for them to work out, you know, a lot harder, but for a shorter amount of time? Like high intensity yeah. interval? Yeah. yeah. Because two hours is a long time every single day. Right. That's a lot to ask. But so... And crew time is very valuable, right? Because they, I mean, you're talking about, like you said, 200, I think it's 200 experiments per increment, right? And astronauts 250 are... 250 is the usual number. In like per a six-month six span, yeah. 250 experiments will happen on board the station. That's crazy. So, yeah, crew that's time is very valuable, and that's two hours gone every day from experiment time just to maintain bone and uh, muscle mass. Yep. Wow. But, I mean, that's just one part of what changes when you're in microgravity. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are the, we, you know, your body actually has less blood in it by the time you come home. Your heart can change sizes because it doesn't work as hard to pump the blood. And then one of the big outstanding ones that we're, we're still addressing is vision changes. And that's something right. that we knew about. But it was never really considered a huge deal, not not a huge deal, but never really considered a, a major impact until within the last couple of years when we had a significant amount of astronauts returning from these really long stays in space and reporting that their vision was worse. And it's normal to come back to Earth and have a couple of changes that linger for a little while. Mm-hmm. But for these crew members, the vision never got better. Wow. And that's a concern. If you send somebody to Mars and in the nine months or however long it ends up taking to get there, all of a sudden they go from 2020 to needing glasses to needing even stronger glasses that they don't have available and they land on Mars and they can't see, that's a big issue. That's a big one. And so we're trying to figure out exactly why this happens. There's a number of good ideas good hypotheses we, we think we know but we're still doing a lot of tests to figure out exactly why it happens and just like the bone and muscle how do we stop that from happening so you got to find those countermeasures to yep. make that happen wow that's really intense i mean imagine get like landing on mars and you can't see anything it'd be kind of a buzzkill. <laughs> 
travel 60 million miles and get out and everything's blurry. It, yeah. That, that wouldn't make me happy. So I know like when, uh, here's another thing, when astronauts, so astronauts, now they're doing on the International Space Station, pretty regularly they're doing long duration increments, right? So they're doing six months at a time. Yes. Uh, so this is longer than any of the shuttle missions or a lot of the missions before it, and it, it's all to practice for, for missions, uh, missions beyond uh, low Earth orbit. But when they come back to Earth, right, they generally right now they come back in a Soyuz, land in Kazakhstan, and then we have recovery teams that go out and get them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they have a hard time walking, right, when they first when they first get out. Some do, and so that's that's part of again the the human body reacting to the different environments. When when astronauts first get into space, some will have nausea, some will have some adverse reactions to being in microgravity. The same is true when you're in microgravity for a really long time and you come back down to Earth. All of a sudden there's this this huge weight pressing down on you that hasn't been there for the last six months or mm-hmm. however long you were there. There's your, your inner ear goes crazy again, like, oh, all the fluid's pulling down again. Where am I? There used to be no up and down, but now all of a sudden there's definitely a down. <laughs> and so it, it can be tough just to just to walk i mean we we will we have teams that pretty much carry the astronauts out of the spacecraft and then onto a medical tent so we try to minimize any of that real discomfort and things like that for these crew members but they are still test subjects and so we still do stuff to them right and part of that is when let's say you're the first person to go to mars when you land not going to be anybody there to pull you out of your capsule or help you set up camp right or anything like that i'm on my own you're on your own and so we need to make sure before we send somebody how much can they do on their own (laughs) and we have these crew members coming back from extended periods in space and we have the ability to test them and now every astronaut is an incredibly gracious person because not a lot of this testing isn't glamorous Oh, and yeah. it can be you use the a word guinea pig, un- right? uncomfortable. They, they are guinea pigs in, in way, almost yeah. every sense of the word, yeah. where they are subjecting themselves to pokes, prods, blood samples, all these different things. For science. For science. Right. For science, yeah. <laughs> but one of the things that we do, and we started doing within the last couple of years, is called the field test. Right. So they'll come home, they'll land in the middle of Kazakhstan, pull them out of the capsule, and then we subject them to a series of, they sound really simple, but it's just functional tests. And it's things like walking a straight line, sitting down and standing up, laying down and standing up, standing up and having somebody push you a little bit. It's all these things that, you know, that sounds, that sounds really easy. Like, can I stand up? I could be an astronaut. Well, right. after spending six months in space, it can be a little jarring. It can be a little difficult. Mm -hmm. And all of that feeds back into the research of, okay, I'm a Mars astronaut. I've been in space for, you know, six to nine months on this trip. I'm now in a gravity environment. You need to design the spacecraft, the habitat, everything to understand that, hey, for the first couple hours, this person might have to just sit in their chair and do nothing. Or, no, we can reasonably expect them to pop up and, you know, do these simple things. Uh, They might not be able to get out of their spacesuit for a couple hours. All all of these different things have to be figured out before you just shove people into a spacecraft, kick them off the planet, and Mm -hmm. send them somewhere else. But we're doing that. We're doing that right now. Yeah. Man, their job is not done when they 
<laughs> the ground. Oh, no. oh, no. You're finally, you know, after six months being away from home, you hit the ground and you're like, ah, I'm finally done. And then they make you stand up, sit down, do all kinds of crazy stuff. And it doesn't stop there. Oh, that's right. And it's, it's, and again, when I, when I say they are truly gracious people, they, they have to sacrifice a lot for, for this. I mean, you know, obviously they get the great view and they're, they're in outer space and that's amazing. But I mean, just training for these missions is usually about two years. So you, that's two years of you in intensive training, a lot of travel to all the other partner countries where they train you on different things. Six months, so you know, off the planet with you and just you know five of your closest friends, but away from all of your family, everything else happening in your life down here on Earth. You can't beyond a, a phone call and an email. You can't really interact with it. And then when they come home. We, we shove them in a tent and push them around and make them stand up and do all these other things and then fly them back. And then the testing continues. I mean, they keep giving samples. They keep right. doing eye exams. Scott Kelly landed in his one-year mission a little over a year ago. He was just here doing more tests. And right. I mean, it, it is a real commitment on behalf of these astronauts to, to do these flights in space. But again, what they're doing is going to help future astronauts. It's going to help future explorers. I mean, everybody down the line will benefit from the work that they're doing. That's right. You have a diverse, diverse crew of uh, our astronaut uh, class, I guess. All the astronauts. They, you got all kinds of different people, and they mm -hmm. all do the same thing. So you, so the more that you do, the more you really have an understanding of what's going to happen in general, like on average. I mean, it's it's like a big sample size, right? So w when you're doing an experiment, well, yeah. you just keep doing the same experiments and big sample size and you can learn a lot yeah and any researcher will tell you that you, you need more subjects you need as many subjects as you can <laughs> they always want more people and the more the better the better the results you can get and it's a good point when you say like they're they're diverse they they are where if you think the early days of astronauts it was you know all male test pilots that's all that's all it was right now you still have you know a lot of military astronauts but it's a much more um, heterogeneous mixture. There's a lot of different parts in there where you mm -hmm. have a lot more scientists, you have teachers, you have engineers, you have bio, I mean, we have a, an astronaut who was up there last year who's a biomedical scientist um, who has done research on you know AIDS in Africa. Like all, they come from all of these different walks of life. Yeah. And because a lot of the work that they're doing on station right now it's not like it used to be. I mean, you're not flying a space shuttle anymore. You are essentially a researcher or a research subject for six months while you're up there. So they're coming from all walks of life now, and that's gonna continue and just expand more as more and more types of people and more and more people gain access to space, mm -hmm. which is the ultimate goal. I mean, ultimately we want everybody they want to be able to go to outer space. Right. I mean, and I wanna go to outer space. <laughs> I think. I, I want to say we all do, but I know there's, I know there's people who don't. They're like, oh, I'm well, fine I on mean, the Earth. Yeah. Again, it's space, so there's always the inherent risk in everything. Right. And there, yeah. there are people who, you know, there's always somebody who doesn't like something. That'll, <laughs> that'll never change. But well, I mean, re no. regardless, that's what the International Space Station is helping us to accomplish. It's really helping us to understand that. So that, that can actually be a possibility later. And the more we do it, the more we learn, the more we, it can actually become a reality. The fact that it's a reality now is, is, is pretty awesome. 
that we can actually do this. Well, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. I think that's about all the time we have today. I feel today. like I just got started. I know. I've left out so many things that people are going to yell at me about. <laughs> well, I, I have like a bunch of questions in front of me. and I, I don't think I, I think I asked one. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think we just kind of talked afterwards. But um, uh, thanks again for coming on. Uh, we'll probably have to do another podcast just on the International Space Station. Oh, right? we're going to have to That do was just like skimming the surface. It's going to be dozens. International Space Station, one, two, three, yeah, 12, 13. <laughs> let's, let's make it an anthology. That'll be awesome. Dan, thanks again, and uh, stay tuned for uh, after the credits or music here to uh, learn where you can uh, submit your ideas and all that kind of stuff. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked a lot about the International Space Station, but really just kind of skimmed the surface. If you really want to dive deep into some of the topics that we talked about today and maybe some things we didn't talk about, just go to nasa.gov ISS. That's our homepage. That's where all the latest scientific experiments and updates and findings and uh, everything going on with the International Space Station, launches, landings, uh, it's all updated regularly. We have a blog uh, that we like to maintain on that page, as well as all the astronauts that you can follow, the ones uh, both on the space station and not on the space station. On social media, we're very active. Uh, on Facebook, it's International Space Station, Twitter, at space underscore station, and on Instagram, it's at ISS. Go to any one of those uh, platforms, and we update those regularly. You can even use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea or maybe a question that you have for this podcast. Just make sure to mention that it's for Houston. We have a podcast, or maybe... HWAP, I guess, would be the acronym for that. We'll probably have to fix that. But just mention us, and uh, we'll try to address your question in one of the later podcasts. This podcast was recorded on March 17th, 2017. Thanks to Alex Perryman and John Stoll for helping record the episode, and of course, thanks to Dan Hewitt for coming on the show. So this show is intended to be weekly, and we have a few episodes kind of sitting in the bank, so it may be a few episodes before we get to your question on social media, but please keep them coming. And thanks for listening. So until next week.